Hello and welcome to We Read This. My name's Ash. And my name's Adam. Today we're talking about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. To, to start this podcast, we've been to the pub, we've had a couple of pints. And done some mescaline done and some ether. Mescaline and some ether as well. Yeah. When did you first read this book, Adam? Uh, about a month ago. Really? Yeah. This is my first time reading it. Are you kidding? No. I was about to start with, because it's every teenage boy's first... <laughs> no, I was reading... I was I, I was too busy picking my way through Hemingway and Melville at this point. To... Melville? Yeah. When you were a teenager? I bloody loved Moby Dick. I still do. I think I was 20 when I first read it. At least 20. Maybe where, 22. Where else are you going to get that really premium seal skinning content from your literature? Japan. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that... Hunter S. Thompson, was there ever anyone like him before or since? My blood is too thick for California. I've never been able to properly explain myself in this climate. Not with the soaking sweats, wild red eyeballs and trembling hands. So I took the $300 and left. My attorney was waiting in a bar around the corner. This won't make the nut, he said, unless we have unlimited credit. I assured him that we would. You Samoans are all the same, I told him. You have no faith in the essential decency of the white man's culture. Jesus, just one hour ago we were sitting over there in that stinking baginyo, stone broke and paralyzed for the weekend, when a call comes through from some total stranger in New York, telling me to go to Las Vegas and expenses be damned. And then he sends me over to some office in Beverly Hills where another total stranger gives me $300 raw cash for no reason at all. I tell you, my man, this is the American dream in action. We'd be fools not to ride this strange torpedo all the way out to the end. I think the the thing that's um, going to dominate potentially this podcast, mm-hmm. but also dominate any conversation of Andres Thompson, was how real any of it was. Yes, he's. Um, it, it's almost disappointing to talk biographically about a writer when you've got a really, really good book. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of want to ignore it. You want to be like Milan Kundera. Mm. has an ideal of novelists all being anonymous but hunter s thompson is the draw he is the attraction to his books well because that's yeah and if you if you or i or if um a more typical novelist Mm -hmm. wrote this book which by the way is um at least ostensibly journalism not a novel then you would you would say, okay, well, you, you had a good time pretending you're a massive um, drug addict, and and some of your lines would seem a bit ridiculous. I think we should we should probably start by defining gonzo journalism. Okay, yeah, sure. Well, there's there's quite a lot of debate about where the term actually originated. Uh-huh. Some people say that it was attributed to to Hunter S. Thompson's writing, um, even if respectively, e- even if it happened, e- even if the term was coined before him. It has become synonymous with Hunter S. Thompson. With Hunter S. Thompson. So let's get into what... Uh, sorry, the other um, uh, theory is that a guy, I think he's a musician called Bill Cardoso, uh, called the Hunter S. Thompson's piece for Rolling Stone on the Kentucky Derby, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Derby, sorry, uh, totally gonzo. Okay. And um, he was using the word gonzo, which is French-Canadian for a shining path, as in a... Flatus, I guess, or something like that. So because I think Gonzo has Gonzo journalism is now if you are a Gonzo journalist, you're not watching meekly from the sidelines or observing. You are in the situation and you're living it, and that's how you're writing your experience of it. Which is interesting because that's something Hunter S. Thompson complained about later. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a documentary, actually a really 
really poor documentary that gets um, kind of scavenged because any clip with Hunter S. Thompson actually in it is really, really interesting Yeah. because it's a, an interesting time. But the documentary itself is either suffering from him refusing to let them film or um, just a really poor direction. But basically it's Hunter S. Thompson going to Hollywood and talking occasionally to the camera. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it is filled in with a really bad audio book style reading of of fear and loathing and a few other pieces i think okay. but it's it's a guy who's doing like a reverse johnny depp it's very clearly an english well i think um it's an english guy doing a very bad american accent it is interesting that the popular image of hunter s thompson is the face of johnny depp it's an interesting phenomenon because a well, lot of I don't know if it is. I think it's I think it's the wild man. It's the drugs fiend, the dope fiend. But I think if you were to if you were to ask anybody without a deep reading of Hunter S. Thompson to have a go at drawing Hunter S. Thompson, they would draw Johnny Depp in the film adaptation of Fear and Loathing. But I mean, what would be the differences between that and Hunter S. Thompson? I mean, he wore his clothes. Yeah. And I mean, it's an impression really more than a performance. No, it's true, but it's one of those when an author, uh, an author, and the person who represents them becomes so inseparable, yeah, that they become one in cultural perception. And they did become inseparable. He stayed at um, yeah. Owl Farm in Woody Creek, Colorado. Yeah. Did you watch? And did you watch the Johnny Depp uh, Rum Diaries? Yeah. It wasn't wasn't great. Not great. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think when did that come out? It was quite a while ago now, wasn't it? Ten years ago. Yeah, maybe, I, maybe I think a I saw longer. it in the cinema because yeah. um, I'm not a big Johnny Depp fan, but obviously it was directed by, I've forgotten his name, but the Withnell and I guy. Yes, Johnny Depp, I think <clears throat> Hunter S. Thompson may have been his, his opus. It may mm. have been back when he actually enjoyed acting. When you see him in whatever the most recent Pirates of the Caribbean sequel was, you can tell he's not really enjoying he's it anymore. Right. Yeah, it's a really good film, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, and I think Andreas Thompson would be over the moon to find that his his work would be yeah. adapted to the film. One of the things that surprised yeah. me in reading a little bit of bio- biographical work about him for this was that he really liked Johnny Depp, yeah. but also just liked the Hollywood clique and liked yeah. um, Hollywood. Well, I mean, maybe not liked Hollywood, but yeah. certainly liked the film business. You sort of imagine him calling them all swines and degenerates. Uh, but no, he was really into them. Yeah. And he was friends with Jack Nicholson. He was into Dennis Hopper. And I, th- I think he'd be very happy to know that the film had acquired a very cult mm. following. Yeah. But in terms of the book, I think the the film has overtaken the book in terms of cultural perception. I wouldn't be surprised that there are people out there who would be surprised to know it was actually a book before a film. Which is um, true also for a book maybe we should do um, as well. The one that I keep, whenever I've texted you or called you saying... The Warriors. We're, we're, we're going to do oh. um, Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah, Leaving Las Vegas. When we I've, talk about I've constantly said... A little aside, do you know The Warriors was actually a book? Was it really? It was a film, yeah. It's called The Warriors. Who's it by? I don't know who it was by because no one's ever heard of it. Because The Warriors film has won out. Yeah. <laughs> well, Leaving Las Vegas, likewise, the yeah. Nicolas Cage film is really, really Based on a book. famous based on a wonderful book by John O'Brien, who, a bit like Hunter S. Thompson, predicted his own fate in that he wrote a book about a guy who went to Las Vegas to drink himself to death, and then a couple of years later drank himself to death. Shall we 
talk about the book. Yeah, let's talk about the book. Shall we? So the the outline of the story is Hunter S. Thompson and the Samoan, who is his lawyer. Well, okay, let's use that as our in. Let's use that as our in. Once again. Once again, by... You can decide which, by genius planning or sheer luck. It's definitely not the first one. We're talking about two platonic male friends going on a road trip. Well, no. We knew that it was two men on an adventure with with questionable direction. Yes. Book. I had forgotten that it starts with a with quote an intro from quote fucking from Dr. Johnson. Johnson. I mean, we couldn't have planned it better. Yeah. But then as soon as you start reading a bit more about Hunter S. Thompson, you go, oh, well, of course he likes Of course he likes Dr. Johnson. Jo- Dr. Johnson. Well, he likes going places and judging people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the opening quote, um, before you even get to the, the substance of fear and loathing, is he who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man by Dr. Johnson, which is a, the first thing it makes you think of is the, the probably sober um, literal sense in which Dr. Johnson made it. Yes. I, uh, th- he who makes a beast of himself as opposed to, as, as in lets himself down, um, gets rid of the responsibility of being a man. I oh. assume, I, I don't know what the context that is. I haven't read everything Dr. Johnson has, who has. But the way I'm assuming Thompson would be is that if you lose yourself so deeply to drink and drugs, then you stop being human. But also, it's interesting in that um, it's not, Hunter S. Thompson narrating this ostensible piece yeah. of journalism. It's Raoul Duke. And I think he was touchy all, all the time about where the crossover was between he and himself and, and Raoul Duke and whether or not what happens in Fear and Loathing actually happened. And I think the quote is significant in that in becoming Raoul Duke and in making Fear and Loathing all about his drug-addled adventures, mm-hmm. he gets rid of the pain, not just for him, but for us of reading what would otherwise be quite a dull journalistic story. I mean, the defining thing about fear and loathing in Las Vegas is there is absolutely no fear and loathing other than um, the fear and loathing (laughs) induced by drugs. Yeah. Without drugs in the picture, it is a very, very dull story of hospitality and um, commissioned journalism. The the, the piece is intended to be a, a deep dive into the dark heart of America. Yeah. Do you think it succeeds in showing you an, an underbelly? I think it succeeds in the fact that it shows the, 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 the silliness of that. And where best to see that than the Las, Las Vegas? Vegas? Where it's pure um, commercial mercenariness and hospitality. And that's why people visit. Yeah. And the only reason that this is an entertaining book or a book of interest is that he has made himself a beast. He's made himself a beast either because he actually took drugs and has transcribed it. We'll get into that in a bit. Or he has turned himself into a beast in that he has made up a name and fictionalized everything that happened because the reality of the trip and the commission was so dull. It would be a pain for us to read a man's account of his trip. It is really entertaining, funny and engaging to read a beast's. Exactly. Sympathy? Not for me. No mercy for a criminal freak in Las Vegas. This place is like the army. The shark ethic prevails. Eat the wounded. In a closed society where everybody's guilty, the only crime is getting caught. In a world of thieves, the only final sin is stupidity. Where do we find our characters at the beginning of this book? Somewhere outside of Barstow, when the drugs began to take hold. A brilliant 
What a first line. Brilliant opening scene in which um, Raoul Duke, Reed Hunter S. Thompson, and his attorney, uh, Dr. Gonzo. The Samoan. The Samoan. Read Oscar Acosta, actually, uh, I think a Mexican yeah. um, lawyer, who uh, Hunter S. Thompson described as, uh, or he seemed to be the one, one of the few people that he really thought was quite a scary man. Um, <laughs> there's a quote in the book, which is something like, you can turn your back on a person, but you can never turn your back on a drug. <laughs> and Oscar Acosta, or the Samoan, is that drug yeah. that you can never turn your back on. Totally unpredictable. Um, he actually disappeared in about 1977 in a strange offshore uh, event. He never heard from since. Never heard from since. That's amazing. He uh, Hunter S. Thompson was convinced he was alive and, and <clears throat> tried to bring attention to the case and investigate it. But um, no, he vanished. Never so, to be heard from. So what what year is this set in for cultural context? 71. 71. I, I'm not sure. I can't. Off the top of my head, I can't remember the... Because he did actually go with Oscar Acosta, who was the real... Mm-hmm. The real Samoan, and not Samoan. He did go to Las Vegas, and he did go to the Mint, whatever it is. It's the Mint three hundred or three thousand yeah. in the book, but it's it's something slightly different in real life. To record basically a, a very, I don't know, dull sounding race in Las Vegas. Because yeah. I think that Las Vegas in the nineteen seventies is you're about ten years out from Rat Pack stuff. You're about ten years out from when Las Vegas was a sort of shiny cultural destination, you're into a decade of sort of depravity. And so rapid, because yeah. Las Vegas hasn't even been around very long. It was built as a, a shining it's jewel. of scaffolding yeah. less than a century ago. Yeah, shining jewel in the desert to be a, a destination to cut loose and hedonism and live wild and mm. the celebrities of the day will be there to entertain you. Yeah. And... With the end of the swing era, I think that was already starting to fall apart. Yep. And the strip was taking hold mm. and organized crime and drugs and unregulated gambling and all of this fun stuff. I mean, the, the thing that's really, really striking about the book is that absolutely nothing happens without no. without uh, drugs. Yeah. Um, like it's this big glitzy place. Um, it's a... You can see the draw for mm-hmm. for a writer of it being a place where you know morals go out the window, where people you know no one goes to sleep. Yeah. You know the bar opens at seven a.m. All kinds of drifters coming in from nowhere. It's the place where you proverbially get buried in the desert. Yeah. Well, it's the modern modern Wild West. Yeah, but essentially it's a big hotel. Yeah. And they go. And what I found interesting about the the link between him and Doctor Johnson. By the way, it is Doctor Thompson and Doctor Johnson. Um, he is a doctor of journalism. Where did he get his PhD from? I can't remember off the top of my head, I'm afraid. But, but real, was, real, real legitimate a, PhD in journalism. He was a real doctor, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, like Dr. Johnson, he, he, he's basically remodeled that quite innocent um, adventure of going to somewhere and cataloging it with new eyes. Mm-hmm. Except that for jaded 70s, and most particularly post-60s eyes, he's had to find a way of rejuvenating his eyes, and that way is drugs in yeah. this case. Well, a, a, a sort of a documentation of a trip, like a, a, a tour of the Hebrides, there would be no interest in that. No, imagine if, imagine if you and I did that. 
if we did that right now where we just did the west coast 500 which yeah. is the west coast drive from top to bottom in scotland and talked about it like no one had ever heard of the places there's a tree 800 words on a tree yeah no it wouldn't it wouldn't go down there needs to be an angle and the angle is drugs well for this it's the the angle is drugs basically what he is he's brilliant at is that in their endless series of very dull deadlines and meetings and um you know, we need to get here to talk about this. We mm-hmm. need to talk to this person. Um, the concierge was going to come up and give us our bill. He turns into a crisis because they're paranoid, um, because he is very, very dramatic. Everything happens dramatically, and even if it's nothing. Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, that the one moment of drama involving other people, the, the one moment, really, that he's in any trouble at all is when he's caught... Um, drunk driving and drunk yeah. speeding by a cop, which in the film is Gary Busey. Yeah. Um, in a scene, which and his, is a and bit his, a- and his acres of teeth, and his acres of teeth. Yeah. Um, that happens in the book, and that's really the only moment of danger for Raoul Duke, and he just like shrugs it off and styles it out. Yeah. Um, there are lots of moments of non-danger in the book, and it's made very very clear that nothing was threatening them where they fall to pieces and end up kind of screaming and um, <laughs> going into kind of paranoid rants about well, lizards or whatever. It's backcountry. Yeah, it's backcountry. Well, that's the other thing, you know, coming back to make a beast of himself, there are a lot of beasts, mm. you know, there are bats, <clears throat> lizards. there are lizards, people in uh, as conceived of in these uh, hallucinogenic um, visions. Two, two random tangents I want to take. Go One, bad lieutenant port of call. A remake of the Bad Lieutenant films with Nicolas Cage, again, where his hallucination... Which is a great film. The Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, he hallucinates iguanas everywhere. And I think that's very much tied back to Fear and Loathing. Well, why do you think it's lizards? Well, have you seen Rango as well? Uh, I have seen Rango, yeah. Rango is very clearly tied to Fear and Loathing. It's a lizard in a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, but why do you think he thought lizards? Because lizards are the most notably sinister well lizard, lizards have an uh, li- the lizard lizard men conspiracy where world leaders and people in power yeah are actually reptiles in skin suits yeah yeah is an incredibly tangent because some tan- people say we're scared of spiders or any reptilians yeah. out of some kind of spinal pang um, like really, because, a real primal yeah, urge, yeah. Because those are the sort of creatures that used to eat us. Mm-hmm. In common sense terms, it's—I mean, unless you're an Australian—it's um, r- ridiculous for us to fear a spider. Mm-hmm. But actually, spiders. But man, as a beast, would be afraid of a spider or a lizard or a snake. Yeah, or... yeah. Um, just on the lizards front, this is a quote from uh, *Generation of Swine*, which is a compendium of, I think, the articles he wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle. He got a lot of mileage out of that word. Swine. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't remember who it's describing, but here we go. The man was a fish head, a creature without many cells. He was like one of those big lizards that never feel any pain when you rip off its tail or one of its legs or even its head, as they do down in Chile, because it will all grow back by dawn and nobody will know the difference. So there's there's something something that he finds... I think specifically horrible about the cold-blooded, which I think all of us feel to an extent. Yeah, and, is, and, and the fact that any and any damage done is instantly reparable and yeah pointless. Yeah, there's a notable lack of warm-blooded 
animals or mammalian animals mm-hmm. in all of his i mean apart from swine yeah. um but you know sharks st- there's um the great red shark that he yeah. drives around in there's a r- really great line where he's that they're i think they're trying to get the money to fund the trip to las vegas uh-huh. and he says he's talking about the different cars and he said we were held up for a while because the stingray in front of us killed a passenger killed a pedestrian sorry uh-huh. um and it's great because in a in a page covered with references to beasts, it just sounds like a giant stingray killed a man yeah. in the middle of this actually r- rare sober moment. Um, obviously, it's a car, yeah. but you know, uh, yeah, it's f- it's full of that kind of thing. So, how would you sum up the what passes for a plot in this book? So, basically, a man called Lesurda yeah. um, sends. Um, Raoul Duke and by extension uh, I mean he's not hired but he's brought along by Raoul Duke the Samoan the attorney to Las Vegas to cover the Mint 300 or 3000 I can't yeah. remember which is a race. a race and Raoul Duke immediately assumes this is going to be a, heart, a journey into the um, Dark American heart, dream I think it's it's the same race as featured in Viva Las Vegas with Elvis Presley when he plays a racing driver. Is it really? Yes. I, oh, I didn't know that. I have seen that. Film. There's a very famous, there's a very famous car race in Las Vegas that slips my mind. Is it the same one? I, I, I American listeners, uh, we do actually have them. We do. We'll probably be um, shaking their heads in shame at this, but I can't remember if it's 300 or 3,000. I can't remember how all, famous it is. All of the drag races we have here in forests. Yeah, or drag clubs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so they're off to Suffice to say... Yeah. That in the context of, um, I nearly said leaving Las Vegas, fear and loathing in Las Vegas, it's not really the main focus. No. But what I find so fascinating about it is the the contradiction between the serious journalist, yeah. because for a lot a lot of the book he's very meticulous. He knows exactly where he needs to be. He talks about room numbers. He talks about where they get lifts from. He's very journalistic, mm-hmm. except he's off his mind on drugs and also hallucinating bats. Our room was at the Flamingo in the nerve centre of the Strip, right across the street from Caesar's Palace and the Dunes, site of the drug conference. The bulk of the conferees were staying at the Dunes, but those of us who had signed up fashionably late were assigned to the Flamingo. The place was full of cops. I saw this at a glance. Most of them were just standing around trying to look casual, all dressed exactly alike in their cut-rate Vegas casuals played Bermuda shorts, Arnie Palmer golf shirts and hairless white legs tapering down to rubberized beach sandals. It seems like there's a constant kind of uh, tension between journalistic instincts Mm -hmm. and novelistic ones. Well, I think talking about sportsmen or authors or people who have jobs that put them in the public spotlight... And then people maybe find out later on that they were doing all of the amazing things they were doing while being completely wasted or off their face. Yeah. There's almost a kind of respect that comes with that, where it's like, you're so naturally good at this one thing that you do that you can kind of do it even when you're barely present. I think that is the misconception of of Gonzo in a way. Mm -hmm. I know he was really influenced by um, Jack Kerouac, Mm -hmm. who also has this... uh, um, you know, on the road was written in a three-week benzedrine high on yeah. endless typewriter paper. What, but was it? Stephen King can't remember the. What was it Cujo? Stephen King can't remember writing Cujo. 
I know, but d- he might not be able to remember it, but yeah. did he write it in one, like, yeah. drug frenzy, like Kerouac claims? Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, and you think this is very telling, he told Tom Wolfe, i.e. a fellow yeah. author, that he knocked the whole thing off in an all-night drink and drugs frenzy, then typed it up. But then he also told his editor, someone called Silberman at the Rolling Stone, that he wasn't on drugs, but was typing Fear and Loathing was a very conscious attempt to simulate a drug freakout. I didn't make, really make up anything, but I did at times bring situations and feelings I remember from other scenes to the reality at hand. I think what you're thinking constantly throughout Fear and Loathing in mm-hmm. Las Vegas is, is this from the mind of someone currently on drugs, or is this someone who's a really, really good writer? And I think it's the latter. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very clear that Hunter S. Thompson has had experience with drugs. Oh yeah, yeah. Slight experience of drugs it goes without saying. The way that the way that he writes is not somebody who's writing based on research. It's writing based on experience. Sure. But whether or not that experience happened exactly the way it was written is the question. I mean, it would be a wonderful bluff if he'd never touched drugs. Can you imagine? And got his whole family to hold Straight up edge. these legendary stories of drug taking and yeah. everything. But um, no, I think the one thing that sort of neutralizes the gonzo theory in quite a moving way really because he i mean he says in the book Mm -hmm. um it was pure gonzo journalism do it now yeah um actually what he's doing is is quite novelistic Uh, it doesn't his ability as a writer doesn't sit well with gonzo principles of yeah do whatever chemicals are nearby and just write it straight down. Just as it didn't work for Jack Kerouac. I mean, he he quotes Coleridge a lot in his journalism. Yeah. And you can tell why. Because there's the, the Kubla Khan thing of yeah. Coleridge woke up mid-dream, wrote it down, and then what someone knocked on the door and interrupted. Well, do you think that... Well, one, is, is Gonzo journalism alive and well today? Or is gonzo journalism only something that could have happened in the 70s and the 80s? Uh, it needed to tear something down. Yeah. The question now would be, like, what are you tearing down? Mm-hmm. I mean, the sort of listicles or um, copy and paste Guardian articles. Yeah, but what what worth does gonzo journalism have today for a modern reader? I think... Well, for a modern reader, yeah. I, I think it's something completely different. I think we approach Fear and Loathing as a as a novel mm-hmm. in 1971. What 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 was it being interpreted as when it was fresh? It was wrecking the ideals yeah. of of journalism. Tom Wolfe said that when new journalism, which is capital M, capital J, they took it very seriously, yeah. came along, there was he said there was this crazy idea that journalism could be read as if it was a novel. And that's exactly what Hunter S. Thompson did. I don't think he needed new journalism to come along to do it. I think he was going to do it anyway. Um, It's an irony that later he complained about um, being on the campaign trail with Jimmy Carter and he was signing more autographs than um, Carter was. And he was saying, I've become too much a part of the story. Uh, I'm in the way. I used to be able to hang back and observe, but I've... Well, I think this this burden of being too in the middle of it has been taken on by documentarians Mm -hmm. recently when, just off the top of my head, I watched uh, Dawnwall and Free Solo recently. Oh, I haven't heard of either of them. Two documentaries about climbing. Okay. But the big question for the one in Free Solo was, this is a man who climbs without ropes the people who were filming him and filming him up close on the wall while he was climbing El Capitan, a giant mountain in Yosemite, was that 
it's like a kind of quantum particles physics thing is us observing this man climbing in such a dangerous way going to change the outcome mm. is us documenting it and being up in his face while he's hanging off a cliff edge by his fingertips and he falls would he have fell if we were there is the story changed by hunter s thompson getting up all up in the middle of it you know i mean that's exactly the thing it has and we're we're living in a um hunter s thompson-ish age i think yeah. now if you did gonzo journalism people would be so cynical I mean, sorry. Now, if you didn't do gonzo yeah. journalism, people are so cynical they might think it is. Yeah. Um, and by gonzo journalism, I mean you know, involve yourself in the story, um, derange yourself in some yes. way, whether it's chemically or not, for perspective to, to or have context a perspective or, yeah. issue. Um, people are very touchy and sensitive to the idea of being subverted somehow. And if yeah. you read a normal article, your instinct, if you think it sounds a bit clever, is to go. Is this guy having a joke on me? Yes. Or, you know, is this guy taking the piss kind of thing? I think that uh, an, uh, um, an organization like Vice, mm. Vice writes all of its articles like the journalists who write for Vice are trying to be the next Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, I mean, Hunter S. Thompson-esque writing is some of the most wearisome stuff to yes. drag yourself through. It, and it comes straight back to that fact that as soon as you read about Hunter S. Thompson, as soon as you see an interview with him, you realize... He might not have written everything in a drug binge, yeah. But he had drug binges. Yes, his uh, his life was full of them. He yes. he did it, and he lived that life. And maybe to some extent, but not in a mawkishly method actor way, he became yes. Raoul Duke. He but wasn't following in the footsteps of whatever Hunter S. Thompson came before him. He was yeah. doing it for. Yeah. I think if you were to see a Vice article, it was like I spent six weeks living with a Colombian drug lord just so I could have some stuff to write yeah i pointlessly endangered myself um in something that i'm not interested in in order to have a hunter s thompson ish effect yes he was doing it for like you said before the sake of tearing something down the sake of destroying mm. old conventions and starting new to shock this was in an age when shock shock journalism shock jock rock could still affect people there's still a capacity to shock. Everyone likes to say, like, oh, people are unshockable now. Mm -hmm. People are always shockable. It's just that we've restricted the rules mm -hmm. a bit. And, you know, he found a way through. Um, he did nothing um, illegal in printing. Yeah. Whereas now to shock someone, I don't know, would you have to? Uh, those are all the kind of considerations you'd have to take. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, the only key to shock is to be, do something original because that's the only thing people aren't expecting. True. Um, Did you enjoy reading this? I loved it and I loved rereading it. Um, and it it made me think that... I did I did read it really, really young. And to be honest, I took it as straight biography, autobiography, sorry, and thought, like, I want a wild character. Mm -hmm. How romantic to be able to, you know, drink yourself into oblivion and then write that brilliantly. Well, there's something very... Something very Byron about that, you know, ha such a, you know, dash, dashing rogue. Yeah. It's a modern dashing rogue story, isn't it? Yeah, although, interestingly, despite all of the debauchery and all of the drugs, it's a very sexless book. He did talk about sex a lot later, mm -hmm. but um, it, in a way, it's almost his most innocent book. And it sounds like a bit yeah. of a silly thing to say about Fear and Nothing in Las Vegas, but it, it, in its grandiosity, in its... Um, blatant desire to be funny mm -hmm. 
even though it's saying like, oh, these are the end times, you know, the American dream is dead. It does come across as quite innocent in that people have pillaged the style relentlessly. Yes. And, and and there's a lot of writers that I really, really like who clearly have learned something from Hunter S. Thompson, not pillaged the style, but, but um, involved a bit of the gonzo spirit and the kind of harshness of some of the humor into their stuff will self i know we disagree about will self and we'll one day have that debate one day we'll sit down and actually talk about and not around will self yeah but he's definitely read his hunter s thompson and he he knows that verbiage he's obviously had that voice in his head like so many people who do read hunter s thompson um steve ayler is another writer that i love and i mean the two voices that i think come through Steve Ayler are Voltaire and Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson, Thompson. Yeah. and there's correlations between Hunter S. Thompson and Voltaire definitely shoot the pasties off the nipples of a ten foot bull dyke and win a cotton candy goat stand in front of this fantastic machine my friend and for just 99 cents your likeness will appear 200 feet tall on a screen above downtown Las Vegas 99 cents more for a voice message say whatever you want fella they'll hear you don't worry about that Remember, you'll be 200 feet tall. Jesus Christ. I could see myself lying in bed in the Mint Hotel, half asleep and staring idly out the window, when suddenly a vicious Nazi drunkard appears 200 feet tall in the midnight sky, screaming gibberish at the world. Woodstock uber alles. We will close the drapes tonight. A thing like that could send a drug person careening around the room like a ping pong ball. Hallucinations are bad enough. But after a while, you learn to cope with things like seeing your dead grandmother crawling up your leg with a knife in her teeth. Most acid fanciers can handle this sort of thing. Yeah, so journalism journalism before Hunter S. Thompson and journalism after Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Journalism before was very much Dog Bites Man, where the majority of it was event happens and we've written a paragraph about event. Yeah. You've seen, everyone's seen what an old broadsheet newspaper would look like giant A3-sized folded paper with everything that could have happened in your local area in the world. And as printing became more widespread and people had more access to print media, you would have more platforms for people to tell their own version of stories, Mm. which is when journalism moved away from being fully fact-focused to being emotional and you would have characters people would be reading for the person writing not just for getting the information and that's when you have Hunter S. Thompson going out to Las Vegas to cover an event in a completely unorthodox way yeah and now modern journalism you have people like let's say the Guardian you've got Owen Jones if you read an Owen Jones article, you know what his spin is and what his beliefs are. And if you read it, you'll be reading fully with the expectation you're going to read his opinion on something. Yeah, You're not just getting Dog Bites Man. Unfortunately, it's, it's his opinion and, and not his writing style. Yes. Above all, Hunter S. Thompson had a strong respect for... Strong respect. Um, deep respect for writing. And I think yeah. that's the thing that makes the the confusion in the gonzo ideal is that the writers he really admired people like Hemingway, mm-hmm. Coleridge, um, you know, literary types basically. Whereas I don't, you know, there's that, that thing about too smart to be a novelist. People have said that about him, mm-hmm. people like Christopher Hitchens. And there's a, there's a link between the two in that they were both quite proud to be called hacks. Yeah. 
um, and took quite a lot of pleasure in detailing how repulsive the journalistic yeah. <laughs> community was and how full of ghouls and spectres it was. Um, I, I, I couldn't, I don't know when you could actually nail it down. Yeah. But at some point in the last 30 or 40, maybe longer, 50 years, tabloid journalism yeah. emerged, which is just hounding celebrities for any scrap of story that might make somebody buy a... Not just celebrities, just victims of, of, of whatever world crisis is going on. Hitchens, I've been reading arguably a uh-huh. big um, uh, set of his essays, and he... Uh, it's apparently a famous thing, but I've never I've never come across it before. But he was using it to exemplify the depravity of the journalist creed and saying, and there is that famous example of someone in, it's an African war-torn country, and I can't remember which one, an English journalist walking through the crowd and going, anyone here been raped and speaks English? <laughs> there is definitely an amount of cynicism in journalism because you know that your story has to communicate into something that somebody wants to buy. Yeah. So there isn't, if, if, if you're a journalist for money, there's always going to be a certain element of necessity to making a living from what you're writing. There's no, I don't think pure journalism exists. Journalism for journalism. Which is another paradox with Andres Thompson because it was always, Yes, he got himself into these um, situations and he got himself on the campaign trail and all of that. But really, people read him because it was him. Yeah. And so when he complained that he had become the story, really, that was a backwards compliment of his own writing style. Because he could have he could be describing the politics in Aspen, Colorado, where he lived uh-huh. or the campaign, the presidential campaign trail or a frankly eventless trip to yeah. Las Vegas. Well, I've got a, I've got a bit of a hot take for you here. Oh, yeah. Louis Theroux is the modern Hunter S. Thompson. Mm. Or similar. A documentarian who will willingly insert themselves into a situation so that the watcher or reader has an element of contact to what's happening. Hunter S. Thompson's point of view was too strong, Mm -hmm. I think, in a way that Louis Theroux's isn't. Okay. Louis Theroux is so aware of of the watcher. And, uh, I mean, we've talked about this, the, the, the knowing audience vessel mm-hmm. who is trying to ask every question that the audience will be thinking in this situation. Uh-huh. Louis Theroux is the master of that. Yes. Hunter S. Thompson doesn't give a shit about that. Oh, but in, not, not, not in the context of an interview, in the context of Louis Theroux comes to you with a, an elevator pitch, which is literally... I'm going to go into the middle of Nevada and live in a brothel for a month. Yeah, you know? in that that he is um, the story as much as the story. Yes. Then, yeah. Although I can't imagine Huntress Thompson doing something as sober, mm-hmm. no pun intended, as some of Louis Theroux's later stuff. But I feel like that may be the way that Louis Theroux would carry himself in that situation would be a reaction against the way Huntress Thompson would carry himself in that situation. Yeah, I don't think that... I mean. I, I have no idea what Louis Theroux thinks about Hunter S. Thompson. I, I don't know either. But if you were enjoys the, but they they aim for similar results with different methods, mm. where they want to communicate what a situation or an event is like, and using themselves as the lens. What I find interesting is that obviously Louis Theroux is not on drugs. No, <laughs> um, Hunter S. Thompson is, or at least ostensibly is. Yeah. And yet, time and again in the novel, things happen that I and I, I said novel. Is it really a novel? Mm. 
things happen that are too good to be just some drug event or yeah. drunk event. Um, I got one here. The obviously it's a beast. The frog-eyed woman clawed feverishly at his belt. Stand up, she pleaded. Please stand up. You're a very handsome man if you just stand up. He laughed distractedly. Listen, madam, he snapped. I'm damn near intolerably handsome down here where I am. You'd go crazy if I stood up. I mean, that's a kind of old-fashioned sort of joke, but it's it's too structurally a joke for it to be something that would happen in a drug binge. I don't know. It's it's interesting the sort of tension between drugs always forcing the issue, but also being so clearly not present in how well calculated the writing is. But none of this makes any difference with a head full of mescaline. You just blunder around doing anything that seems to be right, and it usually is. Vegas is so full of natural freaks, people who are genuinely twisted, that drugs aren't really a problem, except for cops and the Skag Syndicate. Psychedelics are almost irrelevant in a town where you can wander into a casino any time of the day or night and witness the crucifixion of a gorilla on a flaming neon cross that suddenly turns into a pinwheel, spinning the beast around in wild circles above the crowded gambling action. Did you want to talk about the film a bit? The film, like I said before, the film is definitely the cultural touchstone for most people. The film has achieved a sort of cultural awareness of the fisheye lens looking directly in, into Johnny Depp's face and him mumbling about backcountry. Mm. Trying to order my thoughts about the film, because having watched the film then read the book, there's some significant differences. Because if you, if you directly adapted the book into a film wouldn't be particularly watchable but they actually with the film there's at least a, a through line you can follow the characters and what they're doing I feel like the book reacts against that yeah in a way that you're not really supposed to be following what everyone's doing in such a it's a, it's a different way to tell a narrative story through a film than through a book because through a film you kind of have to be if a scene cuts and you're somewhere else there has to be a sort of mutual understanding between director and viewer as to why the previous scene ended there and the next scene started there. Yeah. In a book, you can just start and stop wherever you want as a series of disconnected stories around the same event. I've just had a brilliant idea. What's your idea? That we do a series of podcasts where one of us reads the book and one of us watches the film <laughs> and we arrive with a synopsis that we have written based on each C- format. Cut this out. This is too good an idea this to broadcast. This is so good an idea. I'm definitely not going to include this on the podcast. <laughs> That's a very good idea. Yeah. Okay. And then we compare notes and inform each other what happened in the film and what was left out of the book or vice versa. We need to think of a we need to think of a film that's just as famous as the book is. Oh, there's loads. Fight Club. But, I mean, we could go a lot more literary than that though. I mean, uh, you could, Pride and Prejudice. You could do like Austin, yeah, you could yeah. do um Joyce. That could be our way of talking about Joyce. Which one? The Dead. Last story of Dubliners. There's, a, there's films of those? Yeah. Jesus, okay. Just, just one short story. Okay. By John Huston. And I, I, as memory serves, it's really good. What's some other ones? That's such a good idea. It's a very good idea. I say so myself. <laughs> no, it is, it is a very good idea. We could come up with a snappy name for that. That'd be quite fun. It does almost seem like we should rename the entire podcast if we do that, because that's such a good, catchy idea. It's much better than... Well, then we just release it without an ear read this name on it and just release it as a thing. Or Adam. Or. I just leave this conversation as a teaser. People get really excited about it, then we just start doing it. No, because someone else might do it better than us, so we better not tell anyone. Well, um, 
I should say now that we've reconstructed this entire conversation, we've already re- written and recorded several episodes, um, and they'll be coming out very soon. So if you do, we'll um, we'll suit you. You're not going to leave this in, are you? I am. Are you actually? Uh, probably, yeah. Excellent. Uh, also, because I've just used the word reconstructed, and I um, forgot that it brings a whole new meaning to the phrase recreational drugs, if Hunter S. Thompson is indeed recreating drug experiences uh-huh. as opposed to um, transcribing them. So I feel like this podcast has gone off the road in a similar way to Huntress Thompson's attempt to document a race in Athletic. I think I just steered it back on a little bit, though. (laughs) Um, We didn't really talk about the uh, end of the 60s, which is what he's really talking about. And and it's one of the most quoted um, speeches, which I might just edit in now. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We all had the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west, and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. What a lovely speech. Uh, <laughs> That's my favourite speech. Yeah, um, about the high water mark of the, the 60s. and. Well, I, I sort of brushed on that earlier Yeah, as Las Vegas had hit a peak and it was definitely on the decline but it was also acid culture yes. and um tim leary um who he says something like uh hadn't foreseen the grim meat hook realities lying in wait for the people who took tim leary too seriously to kind of expand your mind take mm-hmm. acid everyone yeah. be, the world would be a better place on drugs sort of mindset it's, it's interesting to me that he um, Hunter S. Thompson criticizes Leary for taking down with him a, um, an illusion of a lifestyle he helped to create, a generation of permanent cripples, failed seekers who never understood the essential old mystic fallacy of acid culture, the desperate assumption that somebody, or at least some force, is tending to that light at the end of the tunnel. The whole concept of gonzo writing, of mm-hmm. Jack Kerouac writing on the road in a benzedrine high, of Coleridge transposing Kubla Khan from a dream... That is also a pretty desperate assumption on the, uh, as a light being at the end of the tunnel. The idea that the innate talent will take over. It doesn't matter how inebriated you are. You'll yeah. just get more truthful. You know what I mean? Like, But at what point do you lose ability? Well, exactly. For, for him, it came... For Hunter S. Thompson, it came quite late. Yeah. But all of his reference to kill the head and the body will die, which crops up in the book and all of this kind of mm. stuff, it does seem in a way that it... You know, if a novelist came along and wrote this book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, it would be considered a character piece. Yeah. How well have you assimilated a, the story, the voice of a rampant drug fiend? <laughs> With Hunter S. Thompson, there is always the question of, and you know, he could have he could have turned forty, sobered up, and his books would look a bit ridiculous. Yeah. You know, you almost have to credit the commitment. <laughs> Uh, to chemicals commitment to the bit in a way yeah um because it but that's exactly it it wasn't a bit you know in so many other writers it is a bit or writers extrapolate from a six-month period when they were really drunk a novel Mm. so when did when did authors stop being so raw or is that just what it's is that just the impression you get living in a time. So let's say like a Hemingway. Mm. Hemingway wrote and then he killed himself. There was this aspect of author's suffering and an author's pain. Do you just not see that when the author's alive and writing like we are with contemporary authors now? 
or has the profession of a writer and the experience of a writer changed? I think coming back to the cynicism thing, mm-hmm. I think we'd be really alert to it now. Sure. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we wouldn't be able to tell. Mental health is much more front and centre in discussion these days. But it's also used a lot more for art. Mm-hmm. So I think the cynicism now is, I mean, I know from going to poetry nights, I often leave thinking, am I inhumane? It sounds like someone just came up and talked about how terrible, terribly depressed they were. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like they didn't really turn it into a poem so much as say it. Okay. Um, with Hunter S. Thompson, there's so much elaboration and so much playfulness about, uh, you know, I'm using a pseudonym. I'm obviously a decent writer. That should give you a clue that I'm not off my head on drugs. However, I will encourage you to think I think that I am. I'll uh-huh. tell Tom Wolfe, writer that's probably going to write about this and pass on to other people, that I wrote it in a three-night drug haze or whatever he said. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that sort of stuff wouldn't really hold up. Yeah. Because people know, just in the way that people know about, are much more canny about filmmaking, they, they're they a bit more canny about about what writing takes as well. Well, when... When you're a computer that you buy new comes with the software for you to be able to type and write and also comes with the software to be able to make films, that's an access into a world that not that long ago was not accessible to the average person. Yeah. Not everyone had a, a typewriter. Not everyone had a movie camera. Yeah, I think actually it's more true of film than writing, mm-hmm. perhaps. And perhaps we're heading into a new romanticism or new innocence about writing because people have forgotten some of the basics. Yeah. But um, I think in Hunter S. Thompson's day, I think it would be more obviously playful. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now, as this whole podcast has proved, we are more inclined to be biographical. Yes. I mean, and to an extent, the, the politics of fear and loathing are, um, I mean, to two English boys. Sorry, not English boys. I'm so sorry. How I said that. I'm so sorry. Dare I regret you. that as soon as I said that. <laughs> as two British boys. It's a bit out of um, our wheelhouse. Nixon era politics. Nixon, yeah. I don't think anything can be further away from my life experience. Could you, could you or would you recommend this book? Could I? Well, I certainly would. I mean, it's a hoot. It's a complete blast. Would you recommend this to someone who'd only seen the film or hadn't even seen the film? Yeah, either. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think the film is. Uh, excellent film mm-hmm. but I get the impression that Huntress Thompson who was very involved in the making of the film saw it as a bit of an extension of the of the book it's sure. not I'm getting excited about our proposed series on adaptations already <laughs> because I, I think the perfect adaptation is something totally different from the book mm-hmm. in fact Fear and Loathing is a very respectful homage uh-huh. to the book I mean almost all of the script seems to be taken straight from the book yeah the central performance is an impression. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to slag Johnny Depp off, but he spent, talk about getting really meta with the fact that you invented a character and then wrote in that persona and then had an actor follow you around in that persona, dressed as that persona. <laughs> I mean, it, it is an impression of a, an impression, really. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's still a great film. He's a, already a visual, he, I mean, there's a sense of hysterical disgust throughout the whole book. <laughs> Everyone's revolting, yeah. including him. Um, eyes are exploding and lizards are, you know, 
yeah. gouging people. Well, it's very, it's very reminiscent of the the comic style of the way that people were writing alternative and anti-establishment comics. Yeah, a lot of the imagery that's in this book is taken and directly. And it is now from, a comic, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming he was imagining it as comics as it was happening because some of this imagery, like eyes exploding and heads expanding, is directly from 60s and 70s era alternative comics. Oh, really? Because yeah. I, I know that his son, I've been reading Stories I Tell Myself by mm. Wan Thompson, who, um, I don't know why it's called Wan. Um, As in J-U-A-N? Yeah. Okay. Um, he, I know he was a big comic fan. I'm not sure if that was because Hunter kept comics around, uh-huh. but it certainly is a... a well, I think comics it's a continuous were, visual yeah. style, but there's there's more to it than that. I can't imagine Hunter S. Thompson being a a comics writer. Comic, I think comic artistry was a very different world back then. It was mm. very much there was you had your sort of daily cartoons, and in the same way that Hunter S. Thompson was rebelling against a very stale version of the media he was writing in. Yeah, comic book artists were doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, I've got a quote here from um, Gonzo, a guy called Jan or Jan Wenner, um, just talking about how drugs are constantly forcing the issue in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. This is this is biographical. It's not about the book. Hunter would always infuse everything with drama. Things were always at stake. There would always be crises. Going to the district attorney's office was going to be a dangerous undercover mission. He was going to get right to the edge of this or that. I think that's that's another way in which the Gonzo side is is kind of true. Yeah. Is that he clearly did live in that always on the edge side. It's just that he wasn't always intoxicated. But um, that definitely improved his writing because he was writing about things that could have been banal if anyone else was writing about them. Yeah. And at the same time he described his writing to when he had Johnny Depp over and was he, Johnny Depp was reciting his lines he would say no you need to read it like music. It seems interesting to me to have a writer who supposedly is writing spontaneously in a kind of drug binge yeah also saying oh no it's like music you expect that of an author who's slaved over stuff Mm -hmm. who said you know i've really thought about the musical properties every word yeah yeah if you get drunk or high and you're not thinking about every word you're not trying to make it musical are you you're you're i don't know he also said he loved the madness and music of Revelation. That's in Generation of Swine. So it's a great book. I highly recommend it. If someone's listening to this who's already read Fear and Loathing but hasn't read the Generation of Swine, just a series of articles. Okay. Um, and just shows how serious a political commentator he was, not just the great um, stylist. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I fully recommend it to answer your question a while back. Um, do you as well? Yes. Yeah. I would recommend it as not being like anything you're going to read this year. Yeah. If you're a fiction reader, if someone who do, if you if a fiction reader who doesn't often make forays outside of fiction, it's interesting to read something that blurs the lines. Yeah. It's interesting to read something that you don't have control over in the way you're going to interpret it. If that makes any sense. Revelation is an interesting word because it's like revelations that 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 good old chapter of the best-selling book of all time where things are being revealed unto you by someone who really does seem to know what's going on in a place that you don't i have a feeling that ash has a reading (laughs) in the way that he's prepped his book in front of him i just wanted to give you one last link 
Um, this is from Generation of Swine. Okay. Um, it's an article called Last Taxi to Scotland mm. by Hunter S. Thompson. I think it, he, did, he, he did actually come to Scotland once. Well, here you go. Yeah. Uh, it's not just Scotland. It's got a personal connection to you, my friend. Oh, oh God. It was some time after midnight when we finally got organised and ready to take off for Scotland. The first leg of the trip would be over the mountains to Denver by long-range taxicab, then a straight flight to New York to pick up the passports and finally across the water. The plan was to arrive in Edinburgh, just in time to make a speech of some kind to a huge crowd of British motorcyclists at the Edinburgh Book Fair. Does he call it the Edinburgh Book Fair? He does call it the Edinburgh Book Fair. But I... You know what? It probably was called that back then. Yeah. Wow. So the Edinburgh, so the Edinburgh Book Festival can claim heritage to... Andreas Thompson. Thompson. Yeah, there, there you, you go. go. I mean, are you? I, I mean, we can we can cut that bit out. Are you comfortable saying that you'll be working at the book festival this year? Yeah, no, you don't, don't need I to don't... say what capacity. No one knows what you look like. <laughs> I, I I I doubt we've got any stalkers. Well, I don't know, mate. Keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> Keep eyes for, 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 for people looking at me. Yeah, or, or be listening to your voice. Maybe you should adopt an accent. Invo- Inventor Raoul Duke. Persona. Maybe I should just get an accent. Full stop. <laughs> Well, I think that's um, in a in a meandering way covered. Yeah, I hope that's expressed. I don't I think like there's any the other way to. Like I don't think the there's book. any other way to examine this book other than in a meandering way. Yeah, and as intoxicated as we are as well. We are. We're into is it two pints and two cans. Two pints, two cans, and um, six lines. <laughs> um, this is back country. This is back country. <laughs> you are my attorney. <laughs> Adam is now pouring his beer over himself to facilitate the tanning process. <laughs> Did we mention the fact that he went on a trip with his attorney? Yeah. Did we? Okay. We, 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 memory. We, we mentioned that the second, the secondary character in this was an his attorney. attorney. Yeah. yeah, like Boswell and Johnson. Yeah. I mean, it's just... It's bizarre, isn't it? It is bizarre. Yeah. Anyway, that has been Eerie This. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Eerie This. Instagram, at Eerie This. Same for Twitter. You can email us any ideas. I've been doing... Um, a couple of the short form poetry ones. I mean, Adam and I have been talking about doing uh, some different things after September. We would like to say, suggest a book and we'll talk about it. But the, the reality is it takes an awful lot of preparation. Like I said, in that poetry episode, we've got to read stuff. We've got to read stuff. Um, we've got to like talk about stuff. We have to make sure that we both are interested in it. Reading stuff and talking about stuff is the two pillars of this podcast. Absolutely. And then editing stuff. Editing stuff. Um, but if there's a, a short story, a poem, um, it could be something by Andreas Thompson. I mean, plenty of articles or shorter articles, that kind of thing. Anything that, that sort of length that you'd like to talk about, um, I can do that sort of episode. Yeah. Uh, a little bit more to spec. Um, if not, um, we'll be back soon with something else. We're not sure yet. Whether you like it or not. Whether you like it or not, we'll be back. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.